morning, everyone. And again, moms, I just want to say happy Mother's Day to you. One of the most precious gifts that God has given is motherhood and comfort and peace to those of you who could not be mothers that wanted to be also. We don't want to forget about you. Ten times in the four Gospels, Jesus told his disciples to beware of something. Ten times. And all but two of those times, his warning had to do with the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Luke 12.1, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The most outwardly moral and righteous men in Israel were absolute hypocrites. And Jesus Christ said their hypocrisy was like leaven. It mixed in and spread to everything, even a little bit of it, just like a drop of leaven or yeast leavens a whole lump of dough. Jesus Christ did not want His gospel contaminated by this idea that you needed to project an image of your own righteousness to other people. Trying to look good when you're not good is much more damaging to the integrity of the gospel than not hiding the fact that you're desperately flawed. The leaven of hypocrisy was a constant threat to the integrity of the biblical gospel that Paul preached and died for. Jesus does not want the contents of the one true gospel tampered with or compromised because we fear or because we love the opinions of other people. It is not the goal of the gospel of Jesus Christ to create a people that look like they don't need Him. And He does not want it even implied that God accepts us because we are moral. So the gospel, which crushes the merit of human works, must always be fought for. The purity of it will always need preserved because the biggest threats to it come from inside the church, not outside the church. The biggest real threats to the gospel come from people that know the Bible, not from people that don't. The gospel is the message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and the complete and total salvation of sinners by nothing but faith in Him. The truth of the gospel must be preserved no matter what the cost. So would you stand with me if you're able as we read from Galatians chapter 1 beginning at verse 11 and I'll just read down through 17 although we'll go further than that this morning. Galatians 1.11 For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Let's pray together. Our Father, if for one minute you were to put any of the responsibility on us to save ourselves, we would all surely perish. So Father, teach us the biblical gospel this morning. Give us grace to believe in it. Give us grace and wisdom to understand here in our church how vital it is to preserve it always. Lord, please overcome my flesh that I might preach your word. Please help everyone here to listen and understand and believe. And I ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Paul has one purpose from 111 to 2.10, and it's to prove that the gospel he preached, the one he had proclaimed to the Galatians, was not a man-made gospel. It didn't come from him or from anyone else. And as you walk through this, Paul is not bragging here. He isn't doing this for personal glory. The issue is this. If his opponents in these churches, the false teachers, could convince the people that Paul was some rogue false apostle 
who was secondary, not as important as the original apostles in Jerusalem, and was just out spreading some independent message, the gospel would be lost in Galatia, and that could not happen. So he goes about proving that his gospel is not, he said it up to this point, but now he goes about proving that his gospel is not a man-made gospel in at least two ways. In 11 through 17 that we've just read, he describes how the gospel originally came to him. No person gave it to him. No apostle taught it to him. He received it by the direct revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, beginning at his conversion on the road to Damascus way back in Acts chapter 9. Before that, Paul had been openly and fanatically hostile to the gospel. He was on his way to put more Christians in prison, kill them when the Lord appeared to him and saved him. He had no earthly reason whatsoever to leave Judaism. Listen to Philippians 3, 4-6. through 6. Paul says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was extremely zealous, like Phinehas back in Numbers for the traditions of his fathers. His point is, his, is to say here, so where do you think my present zeal now for Jesus Christ the Messiah is coming from? It's coming from Jesus Christ the Messiah. God the Father had chosen Paul by His grace before Paul was even born to become his vessel to proclaim this gospel to the Gentiles. Paul had been set apart, much like the prophet Jeremiah. In the Old Testament, Paul was called and commissioned by God himself. He was given the gospel by Jesus Christ himself. And because of that, Paul didn't need to go and consult with any human being. So neither he nor the gospel he preaches is dependent on anyone, including the apostles in Jerusalem. The second way Paul proves that the gospel he preaches is not a man-made gospel is outlined in verses 18 through 24. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, or Cephas. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorify God because of me. So now, Paul illustrates how the gospel he preaches is not dependent on the other apostles. Again, the false teachers needed to discredit Paul's authority. Right. So Paul shows that not only was he commissioned by God, but he's also not a student or a product of the original apostles. For three years... He studied with Jesus in Arabia after his conversion before going back to Damascus to begin his ministry. Then he traveled to Jerusalem and met with Peter for 15 days, just, just a little over two weeks. He also met briefly with James. He didn't go there to learn from these men, but to see them and to join them. And he says, I had relatively little, if any, contact with any of the apostles or churches in Judea. In fact, they only heard about me. He didn't speak to them, didn't confer with them. He received the gospel the exact same way all the apostles did by the direct revelation of Jesus himself. So Paul is as authoritative in the church and for the church as the original apostles are. He's not secondary to them. So he proves that his gospel is not man-made. It's not his own version. By showing first that he was given his gospel by the direct revelation of Jesus. And second that he was never dependent on the original apostles for his teaching or his commission. Now, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul also wants to prove the validity and authority of the gospel he preaches by showing that it does not differ from what the original apostles teach. Look at verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. 
yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, they, they were brought in secretly, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, see how repetitive Paul is here? Added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So 14 years after his conversion, Paul finally goes back up to Jerusalem because God told him to. It's a very specific revelation so that he could meet with the leaders there privately, including Peter and John, about the gospel. And what they found when they met was that there was absolutely no difference between what Paul had been teaching for 11 years in Antioch and what the apostles had been teaching all that same time in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. There has never been one issue of difference between the substance of Paul's gospel and that of the original apostles. That's verified in verse 2 and verse 7. They are one and the same gospel, no matter the audience. And that phrase he repeats, those who seem to be influential, is probably Paul using the very same terms the false teachers used, but in order to ruin their argument. They were playing up the authority of the leaders in the Jerusalem church, even though they weren't a part of them and actually disagreed with them. The influential ones, they were probably or possibly calling them. And Paul says, yeah, they were not a big deal to me. And when he says he met with him to make sure he was not doing his work in vain, he doesn't mean he didn't know until then if he was preaching the true gospel. It's that if his gospel did in any way differ from theirs, it would cause a mountain of problems in the church. It would, it would amount to a giant waste of time. There would be trouble everywhere. But what they found out was that it did not differ at all. They all taught exactly the same things because they all had exactly the same teacher, our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is Paul so repetitive? Why the details? Why does this matter? Because he has to persuade these believers in Galatia that the gospel he's been preaching to them is the true gospel. If he couldn't persuade them of that, if he couldn't refute the claims of the false teachers, the true gospel in Galatia is lost. And, and the issue throughout this letter is the preservation of the gospel. We don't find this type of compressed defense of his authority or his credentials in Paul's other epistles. Only here. This is as angry as we'll ever see Paul get. And he is angry. Wait till we get to the end of the letter and the words that the Holy Spirit inspired for Paul to say on this matter. Paul wasn't even as angry about the church in Corinth. We mentioned that very briefly last week. The church in Corinth was a hot, stinky mess. Right? It was just, it was a moral catastrophe. And Paul is not as livid there as he is in Galatia. Because there's something that might not be easy to understand, but is true nonetheless. False doctrine is more reprehensible to the apostle Paul than lousy morals. Scary, isn't it? Scary to say something like that. Beloved, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. You can clean yourself up all you want. And you can actually get pretty outwardly moral. But if you don't believe that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are the only thing that saves who cares how morally upright you are? 
it will accomplish nothing. Paul isn't arguing his apostleship for the sake of personal glory or power. The gospel is at stake in a place where he happened to be the one who brought it to the people in the first place. He has to defend himself here. And the most important thing to Paul, the more important thing to Paul than all the moral problems in a church like Corinth was the loss of the gospel in Galatia. The root of all the trouble is in the doctrine. Is the death of Christ enough to save? The answer is yes or it is no. Period. And if the answer is yes, then trust it by simple faith. If the answer is no... There is no salvation. Beloved, we are in trouble and our kids are in trouble if we are basically using the Word of God to teach morals. I agree with Rod Rosenblatt here. We aren't trying to crank out Eagle Scouts, but redeem sinners who believe the death of Jesus is all that it takes to be saved. Galatians is crucial because it has to do with the preservation of the gospel that's actually a gospel. A message that you and I have to put in something is not good news. The gospel that's really a gospel without allowing anything to be tacked onto it. We can geld the gospel by adding onto it, even if we're adding onto it with Moses. And the standard attack against that will be what it has always been. Oh, that's antinomian. Just like it was against Paul, right? You're against God's law. If we're talking about what saves a person, absolutely. Absolutely. I am against the belief that you save yourself by obeying the law. You should be too. I thought we were Baptists. We're not talking about how a person lives. We're talking about what saves. We, I know I said that so much last week. We have to keep saying it. If we mix those two, if we mix how a Christian should live with how a person gets saved, if we mix them, if we confuse them, we lose everything. We mix those two, preacher... If I mix those two, if you mix those two, Sunday school teacher, if you mix those two, Bible study leader, we lose everything on which we can stand. Everything. This is the hill worth dying on. No matter what it costs you. No matter what it costs us. Notice how this gets in and works. Notice the situation with Titus in verses 4 and 5. Since... Like we saw last week, the opponents of the true gospel will not ever be able to leave well enough alone. Started in the Garden of Eden or or outside the Garden, sorry, when Cain murdered his brother because God accepted his sacrifice and not Cain's fruit. You see, that those that want to attack the gospel, that you're saved by grace, that all God will accept is the blood of His Son, they will never stop fighting against you and attacking the gospel so that you won't believe it. And since that's true, they're doing the exact same thing to Paul already in this instance in Galatians. While they were uh, false brothers, that's a real thing. False brothers tried to force Titus, a missionary companion of Paul, a Greek, to be circumcised. This was always an issue. Remember, it was hard to tell that they were off because... Anywhere this stripe came up, yes, you need Jesus, we don't deny that. But in order to really actually be a part of the people of God, according to Genesis 17, right, they're quoting the Bible, false teachers always do, quoting the Bible, in order to really be a part of the true people of God, you have to be circumcised. Paul, you need to, you need to get a handle on your boy Titus here and get this taken care of if you're going to be out there claiming the name of God. They were spying out their freedom. That is, the fact that Titus did not have to be circumcised if he didn't want to in order to be a part of the people of God. They couldn't handle the fact that Paul and his people thought they were free so free that they were no longer required to be circumcised in order to be a part of the people of God. They could not let that rest. They hated that, and they hated Paul. 
And you see here, why? Why did they want him to be circumcised? Easy. Because they believed that slavery saved. Right? To bring them, to bring Paul and his missionary team into slavery. Which is what in the text? Adherence to the law for righteousness. Paul refused to do that in this situation because mingling law and gospel would not help preserve the truth of the gospel. It would damage that. When the gospel gets mixed with anything, it disappears. It loses its uniqueness. It loses its power. Right? Do we realize how quickly and inadvertently we do this? Yes, all you have to do to be saved is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's all you have to do. But you also have to do this, 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 and this, or you're not saved. Those are two different things. Sorry. They're two different things. We cannot simultaneously preserve the gospel and adherence to the law as a means of righteousness. We can't do it. Well, if that's the case, then just quickly, why did Paul circumcise Timothy in Acts 16? Why not Titus, but Timothy? Because in Timothy's situation, circumcision would aid evangelism in the synagogues there. Paul was, remember this, Paul was always willing to be flexible when he could be, where he could be, to win converts. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, right? I have become all things to all men that by any means I might save some. To the Jews I became a Jew. To the Greeks I became a Greek. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Right? Ceremonies are fine until you start attaching justification, being made right with God to them. Then they've got to go. In the case of Titus, people there in this instance were insisting that in order to be made right with God, to be justified, you had to be circumcised. If in that situation Paul would have given in and circumcised Titus or had him circumcised, it would look like Jesus then, it would look like Paul believed, and this is important because of what happens with Peter later, if he gives in here, it would look like Paul was saying, you know what, Jesus is insufficient for righteousness and acceptance by God. And when that is the case, if it's going to look like that to do it, we aren't going to circumcise Titus, period. Paul says. Paul called those men false brothers. Their motives were evil, like spies that infiltrate an enemy camp and become friends with everyone to get information. We have to always be on guard. I know it's not a great thing to think about, but we always have to be on guard. It doesn't matter how nice people are. If spies wore t-shirts that said, I'm a spy for the enemy, it would be impossible for them to gain any traction. They don't. They don't. Paul says, we didn't submit for a moment. Why? Why not give in there so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for them? There's a way to live that portrays the truth of the gospel. And there's a way to live that does not. Paul would not let the freedom we have from the law in Jesus Christ be put in danger. Not from We are free from all law. As though you could be condemned by not observing some rule. The truth of the gospel obligated Paul to be stubborn on these things. And part of the truth of the gospel is that we are no longer under the old covenant law. We are freed from it through Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is an astounding moment in Scripture. Do we see... The, just the tectonic shift that is happening here. Now that Jesus has risen from the dead, remember the opening of the letter, now that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, Paul equates following the law with slavery. Who does he think he is? See, that's how different the view of the law is now. Christ has accomplished a new exodus which is a release from the slavery of the old covenant and the unmeetable demands of righteousness under the law. That was Paul's gospel. If you think that's off, read the letter. Right? This, that was Paul's gospel. 
This was the content of his teaching that was the precise reason for the backlash against him, beloved. The only way people can get around it is to try to divide up the law so that, well, you're, you're not on the hook for the civil and ceremonial stuff, but you are on the hook for the moral stuff. If only the Bible would have done that. If only it wasn't like subjective and you just pick and choose what fits in what category and what part people have to obey and what they don't. Why would you do that? What are you passionate about if you're doing that? And by the way, it's all moral. If God says to do a ceremony this way and you don't do it that way, it's immoral. It's all moral. They kept comparing Paul to these men who seemed to be influential. And Paul says, God doesn't care about those kinds of things. We are the ones who esteem outward appearances. We esteem and respect titles and positions to the point that we end up paying more attention to them than the Word of God. When not even an angel from heaven is allowed to speak over us on what the true gospel is according to Paul. In verses 6-10, through 10, the reason those who seem to be influential added nothing to Paul is because they saw that he had also been given grace to preach the very same gospel they did. So there was no need to add anything to Paul. There was no need to correct anything about him or teach him anything, to have him clarify anything about what saves and makes us right with God. Nothing. They all preached the same thing. The only difference was their destinations. The only thing that they asked Paul to do was not forget the poor in Jerusalem as they were going out to the Gentiles, and Paul had planned on that anyway. He knew the gospel meant hope for the poor. But there's one little last thing here for Paul to clarify before he'll move into the thesis of his letter, which God willing we'll get to next week. Listen to verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. That's Peter. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Truth trumps office. The Word of God has priority over human offices. So, beloved, just real quick, just so we're clear, we need to remember that if the Word of God does not bind your conscience to obey something, then no man and no man-made document can ever be permitted to. To allow additions to the Bible in the name of safeguarding, to lord over the conscience of people whom Christ has set free, is to toy with the very substance of the gospel. And according to Galatians 1, 8, and 9, it is to teeter on the brink of destruction. That is what we're talking about here. Peter had apparently been eating with Gentiles, sharing table fellowship with them, which meant that there was no longer... Any, I mean, it means a myriad of things to eat at table with people in these cultures. If he was doing that, it means he's probably eating unclean foods according to Deuteronomy 14.21, Leviticus 11. But what do we know about Peter by the time we get here in the New Testament? This was Peter's custom now. You remember, Peter had a, a... He knew very well that the clean laws of the Old Covenant were no longer operative. He had a very nice, clear little vision of that in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Peter knew what the truth was. He could eat anything now with anyone. It didn't matter. Theologically, Peter and Paul are on the same team here. But in a moment of pressure, when Peter's reputation with the Jewish leaders was on the line, he buckled. And here's the thing. His actions had consequences for Gentile believers. Negative consequences. So, Paul opposed Peter to his face. Because he was guilty of compromising the gospel. 
how did he compromise the gospel? We have to look. Could you imagine, by the way, being Peter? You were with Jesus for the whole time. And then this guy who wasn't with you, who put people like you in prison for a long time, is confronting you to your face. That you're out of step. Truth trumps office. That, that's the point here. The truth of the gospel trumps experience. It trumps credentials. It trumps titles. We're talking about the contents of the gospel. Paul is also show, showing this is how independent he was. He could stand up to Peter. He didn't rely on these men for permission. The circumcision party was doing what they do, just like they were now doing in Galatians, spreading their cancerous false gospel. So Peter didn't fear the men from James. They were on the same team also. Peter's concern was that if word got back from them in Jerusalem, that one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church was eating unclean foods with Gentiles, then those of the circumcision party would get on his back. So Peter drew back and stopped eating with the Gentile believers. How second class would they have felt? And notice what the result was. The rest of the Jewish believers there did the exact same thing. Even Barnabas, the encourager, took part in it. Why did Paul confront Peter? Verse 14, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? By refusing to eat with their Gentile brothers and sisters, they were acting like false brothers who were distorting the gospel. This verse is where we get the term Judaizer. The verse asks in Greek how Peter can force the Gentiles to Judaize, to live like Jews. You're making it look, Peter, like the right thing to do is to disassociate from those who don't live properly like Old Covenant Jews do. Blake White comments that the Greek word for the phrase conduct not in step with is orthopodozoine, from which we get our word orthopedics. Peter, his feet were crooked, and Paul is calling him to get back in a straight line with the gospel. Paul's ultimate allegiance was to Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel he had given to him. No exceptions. There was no battle not worth fighting to preserve it, no matter who it was. So the original apostles were not divine. They were not flawless, Paul is saying. They were all the servants of the gospel. Now, according to this text, conduct that is not in step with the truth of the gospel is anything that would make someone doubt or question or get confused about what it is that makes a person right with God. Is that how we think of it when we think of conduct not in step with the truth of the gospel? It's any kind of conduct that obscures the fact that faith in Jesus Christ alone is what saves, apart from any of our works. Which means, beloved, conduct that is not in step with the truth of the gospel is actually centered mainly on things we do or do not do to appear righteous not primarily mistakes we make or sins we commit because we aren't this thing is what makes me a child of God you see I'm a child of God I don't do this I don't do that you're very happy and quick to tell everybody that that's the case well I just putting up the front that you are righteous implies, whether you mean it to or not, what we're learning here, that you think that is why God accepts you, because you're righteous. Do we understand that? It's not our works, it's not any obedience to the law that gains us God's forgiveness, makes us God's people, or makes us righteous. What forgives us is the blood Jesus shed for us. What makes us God's people is His declaration about us because we've believed in His Son, Jesus Christ. And what makes us righteous is the righteousness of Jesus Christ being credited to our accounts because we believe in Jesus Christ by faith. And none of that has anything to do 
with what we do or do not accomplish. Jesus said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And then what do you see from Paul in the first part of 2.13? And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically. In the second part of verse 13, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Do you see? It's just like Jesus said. The leaven of Peter's hypocrisy leavened the whole lump. The rest of the Jewish Christians pulled away from the Gentiles. Then Barnabas, the son of encouragement, pulled away. Why? How are these acts... We understand they're wrong. How are they hypocritical? What's hypocritical here? He just stopped eating unclean foods with the Gentile Christians, which is bad enough, because he was afraid of the circumcision party. Beloved, his actions were hypocritical because they conveyed to those Gentile Christians that Peter thought what made a person righteous had something to do with the food that he ate. And Peter knew better. He knew better. Peter knew What he ate did not make him righteous before God. So why was he acting like a Christian is too clean to eat their food? Do you remember this verse from Acts chapter 15, verse 10? Listen carefully. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. Do you know who said that? Peter said that. Peter said that. Peter knew he couldn't ever obey the law well enough or completely enough to be righteous before God. Peter knew that not one of his ancestors, not one of them, had been able to perfectly obey the law. Not one person ever lived perfectly like an old covenant Jewish person was supposed to live. None of them ever did. So why in the world is Peter now trying to make anyone believe that what makes you righteous or marks you as righteous is what you eat? Paul confronts Peter to his face over this. Food doesn't get to mark you off as God's own. You have obscured, Peter, how people are actually made right with God. You've muddied the water. You're acting like a hypocrite. You don't observe the law perfectly. You never have. What makes you think you can try to force them to? Because that's what his actions have inadvertently done. So now those Gentile believers are saying, wait, wait, Peter abstains from food prohibited by the law. Those who eat the, we're sinning if we eat this kind of food? We're sinning, you guys. We have to, we have to stop. You see, that's evil. That's evil. He's threatened the conscience of these believers. We should not do that by implying that if they don't obey the law, they're not right with God because Peter, obviously, I I can't do this anymore. Why? Well, because what are they going to think? You you can't be right with God if you do this. Beloved, it's a fight. You see, I wish it wasn't. But it's a fight to preserve the truth of the gospel, which is not just a matter of what we proclaim in words. If you would have asked Peter to preach a message on the content of the gospel, he would have gotten it more right than any modern preacher can hope to do. It was Peter. Preserving the truth of the gospel is not just a matter of grandstanding from the pulpit. It's a matter of how our conduct reflects that we are not for one second in any of our works trusting them as the basis for why we've been made right with God. Does your conduct reflect that you believe that about your conduct. We don't preach ourselves. Not just That's not just a pulpit issue. That's an issue about how we live our lives. We don't preach ourselves. We don't preach ourselves. Right? You listen to some testimonies, Jesus might show up at the end. We don't preach ourselves. 
we preach Christ crucified. And beloved, when behavior is performed to even imply to others that we are made right with God by our works, it is hypocrisy. We know our works do not gain us merit and favor before God. Why are we acting like it? Oh, Galatians cuts almost like a sword that's living and active and sharp enough to lay us open, doesn't it? Have you ever... If, if, if we were to ask ourselves, if we were to be honest with ourselves, what kind of conduct... Have you ever thought about... When you think, what, what kind of conduct is in step with the truth of the gospel? If I were to ask you that, first of all, have we ever even thought about it, whether my conduct was in step with the truth of the gospel? Does the way I live, what do we normally try to make sure our conduct is in step with? The law. Right? Right? I mean, come on. My, my conduct, I've got to make sure I follow this and this and this and this. Not these, not those ones. I, those don't apply. This, 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 and this. Make sure my conduct is in step with the truth of the law, which is not commanded anywhere. Wish we were half as concerned about showing mercy and love as we are about whether or not somebody might have taken the Lord's name in vain, even though G-O-D is not his name. I, I, don't, I don't know. Right? Make sure your conduct is in step with the truth of the law. No. No. So if, if, what kind of conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel? What are we going to quote? What rules, actions? Does it occur to us that maybe our righteousness might need repented of? Because we're saying the wrong things with it. You see how desperately we need Jesus? You see what the Bible's going to do? I thought I was right. I thought I was right. Beloved, we have to be intentional about the preservation of the one true gospel precisely because it's so easily lost. It's, it's so quickly compromised. It's so easily obscured because the primary breeding ground for adding to the gospel with works is not the world, it's the church. And you say, how, what do you say? The church wasn't even safe from this when the apostle Peter was in the room. Like, none of us in here are above Peter. And it was a danger for them when he was there, when the apostles were still alive. This was a danger. We're like 2,000 years removed. None of these churches still exist. It didn't get preserved. It wasn't their fault, but they didn't. We have to take Paul seriously here. Well, real Christians don't do this. Real Christians don't do that. You, you, you better stop it. You better stop it. Because one of these days, somebody's going to pull the rug out from under you and say, all right, real Christian, list for me your righteousness, and we'll see if you line up to what you demand. So, shouldn't Christians live right? Yes. But do you think living right is what makes you right with God? See, there's a way to live that shows you do think that, and then there's a way to live that is in step with the truth of the gospel. That's what's at issue in the book of Galatians. And the inherent danger is so deadly to the church that Paul will give no quarters to those that threaten the doctrine of justification, of being made right with God by grace through faith in Christ alone. Beloved, we have to be willing to admit how easily and quickly we are prone to become legalists. We can't let anything that even hints at taking us down that road survive in our church. No matter what. The slowness of our progress in the Christian life will tempt us to adjust the contents of the true gospel. And we cannot let it. The law makes nothing perfect. It is not the answer to our lack of progress. More gospel is the answer for our lack of progress. As long as we think that assurance of salvation comes from work, we will be vulnerable to losing the gospel. 
That's where the fight is in the church. That's where it will remain. And we have to wake up. Every church. It's not an indictment on you. This is every church has to respect Galatians. This is our fight. It is not the strength or the progress of our faith that saves. It is the object of our faith that saves or there is no saving. Tony, isn't the law holy and righteous and good? Yes. A million times, yes and amen. But if for one second we try to make following the law what makes us right with God, what grants us justification, we've lost the gospel. A passion to preserve the law is what makes us right with God comes from the Judaizers, that those whose passion it was for themselves and others to make sure they lived like old covenant Jewish people. That was the passion. But Jesus Christ has lived, He's died, He's risen from the dead to ascend back to His Father where He's reigning right now, which means to impose keeping the law on people as a means of being made right with God and becoming a part of His people, is now to impose slavery on them. And He will ask them in just a few verses, why in the world do you want to go back to that? We've been delivered from the age where those things were necessary to identify someone as the people of God. Verse Chapter 1, verse 4. The bottom line is always this, what saves? And it is Jesus Christ that saves, period, completely, all the way. So we preach Christ crucified to sinners and nothing else as how we are made right with God. And we don't let the hypocrisy of having to appear righteous muddy the water for anybody. Don't make it look like that God saves perfect people and only perfect people. Don't flaunt your sin. Don't flaunt your freedom. That is not the point. But at the same time, don't flaunt your righteousness. It's not good enough. What are you flaunting it for? Don't make it look like that only the goodies get cleaned. Beloved, preserve the gospel in our hearts at all costs. It says conclusion here in my notes. I'm, I'm almost done, okay? I want you to, I, I, I know, listen. It's Mother's Day. The lines at restaurants are going to be brutal because Lord knows the fathers aren't cooking. We aren't cooking. The fact that even the greatest saints sin like Peter here, man, that's a great comfort to you and me. We need saving. We need saving. All of us. We need rescued, beloved. Not assisted. So no matter how counterintuitive it is to believe that faith in Jesus Christ alone is the only thing that saves us, we cannot abuse the goodness of God in this gospel by insisting on adding something to it. Don't abuse the goodness of God. Don't begrudge Him His mercy. Just take it. You're going to turn out all right. I have no fear of that. I mean, we've pressed people to obey for long enough. It's not working. Everybody's still messed up and rebellious somewhere. Let grace reign for a while. Let it reign. Preserving the gospel is not only a matter of a church's faithfulness and biblical integrity. It's also a matter of personal salvation. This is the only message that means you and I can be made right with our Creator. It's the only message, it's the only way for us to come back into fellowship with Him after our sinfulness has separated us. Moms, you moms out there, your salvation will never rest for one second on your performance as a mother. Do you know that, Mom? It will never be found. Salvation will never be found, Mom, in how your kids turn out or what happens to them or the choices they decide to make. When you stand before God Almighty, He will not ask you to present a rap sheet of how well you did with your kids as the source of your salvation. You have to know that every day, Mom. Every day.
Because if you don't, you'll look to your kids for your salvation and you'll ring them and ring them and ring them to become something they can't. This is your invitation to rest and find all of your identity in Jesus Christ alone and what Jesus Christ has done for you. That's what the gospel is. In him you will always be loved and accepted by the Father, regardless of anything else. Do you all believe right now that it is the death of Jesus Christ that is sufficient to save you? That is the hope for all of us in this place now. So believe. Call out to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. I'll be down front if you need to come and pray. I'll be there. Father, I thank you for the time that you've given us today. I thank you for your word and its truth. Father, I praise you for what your son has accomplished for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with us now and enable us to trust fully in him and him alone. And this I ask in his name. Amen. Before we go, uh, I want to ask Anadra Dudley and Gianna Romano to come to the front. If you would, please present you with these certificates.